This talk was given at the North Carolina Zen Center. Our program is made possible with the support of our members and friends. If you'd like to make a donation or become a member, please visit us at www.nczencenter.org. We have found that one can aid their own understanding of a Dharma talk, or Taisho, if you sit in meditation beforehand, and we encourage you in this practice. Welcome, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> there we go. All right. So usually when I start uh, a show, I start with a quote or a column, for example, or a, um, a teaching from the Buddha, uh, oftentimes just a kind of a, a passage. And so today's is going to probably be the shortest uh, beginning, opening quote that I've ever used. And it's from our miscellaneous koan collection. And it simply says, count the number of stars in the heavens. Count the number of stars in the heavens. So just keep that in sort of residing somewhere in your mind. So about three weeks ago, I spoke about, began to spoke, speak about the, the Bodhisattva vows, the great vows that we all recite here. And I, I focused mainly in that talk, I focused mainly on the first of the four vows. All beings without number, I vow to liberate. And more generally, I also spoke about the role of the bodhisattva. What is a bodhisattva? So I'd like to continue that today, that uh, topic of the four vows, and see what comes up. Um, so let's kind of orient ourselves. All beings without number, I vow to liberate. Endless blind passions, I vow to uproot. Dharma gates beyond measure, vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha I vow to attain. And so sometime today, maybe towards the end, Sheldon is going to share on screen for folks at home and then afterwards we can take a look at it. I, I didn't even think about here. It's, <laughs> we're all facing this way, so it's, it's only going to make sense for folks online. Um, we have a copy of a document from the Zen Center of Los Angeles where they did a class on the Bodhisattva vows and they have all sort of all the versions that they could compile. So you could kind of see the different translations of the four vows. So this koan about the counting the stars in the heavens that I wrote a few minutes ago, which is encountered very early in our koan tradition, um, in a way, it's, it can feel um, just like these vows, like an impossible task. You know, count all the stars in the heavens. How do you, how do you do that? Where do you start? Is it possible? Uh, 
the, the impossibility of the four vows is what I spoke about uh, and how what's important is at times is to get overwhelmed by the impossibility of these vows that we take. That, that is an important thing. Why? During the first talk, I mentioned how the Bodhisattva um, is a being that takes complete responsibility. You know, she, uh, not, just, not just for the lives of um, their own lives, but having seen really that there is no dividing point between self and other, they um, take responsibility for, for others as well. And in that, there's this kind of choicelessness that arises in a bodhisattva's life. In other words, they've come to a point in their life where um, that is um, the priority. You know, not everything else sort of takes a back seat to helping others. A bodhisattva is someone who vows to bring all beings to awakening in that. There is no um, calculation. There is no, uh, they don't finish. They don't finish this work. And there's, there's no concern about the impossibility of it, uh, the enormity of the task. She simply begins the work and then continues. I think, you know, it's so relevant in our world today with the enormity of the tasks, the enormity of the difficulties that we're facing, not only as Americans, now with, the, of course, with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and, you know, just think of the litany of things, environmental catastrophe that we're facing. The Bodhisattva ideal becomes so important as a guiding principle for us in how to make our way through this world. In other words, we need to put down the leisure sheet the, and, and just do the work that's necessary. Whatever that is for you in your life, we just need to, we need to stop looking at the constant consideration of what's the payoff going to be, right? This is really where so much suffering comes from, this constant calculation. We used to, we used to joke as young trainees in Rochester at the Zen Center, we'd sit around the kitchen and kind of have coffee and we would say, well, I want to know what's, what's in this practice for me? You know, what's, what's in it for me? Which, in one way, is a very, very good question. You know, that's what is in it for us. At the same time, it's a very absurd question. It's a very absurd question. Because it, it, it really narrows the practice. It's the very me that we are trying to see through. Right? It's also absurd because um, you know, it, it, it really is about um, how insatiable 
our desires are, how endless this need, these needs that we have, these desires that we have. So when we consider, uh, through our practice, when we consider how much time we spend thinking about that finish line, when am I going to reach awakening? When am I going to experience samadhi or oneness with my practice? When, when am I going to, and then fill in the blank, how much of our lives are spent in that calculation? This is why we become overwhelmed because we are looking at the finish line. You know, it's like a, any marathon runner, if they're, if they're focused on the finish line, man, you know, they're not gonna make it. So this practice is about seeing that dynamic very clearly, not, not because we need to stop having desires, that's not gonna happen. I'm not going to stop needing things, but to see how the desiring process, this process of what's in it for me, how that blindly drives us, right? how, and how from that, it ends up doing so much harm in the world. Endless blind passions I vow to uproot. This word passion is so important. Um, it can be problematic because certainly we're not trying to take the passion out of life. This is one of the often misunderstand, misunderstood things about Buddhism is uh, people have this idea that it's about kind of just this cool, calm, detached way of being in the world. Of course, this is nothing but deadening. So we're not here to detach. not here to cut off from the passions of life. Zen isn't a path of denying or suppressing or repressing. Why? Well, first of all, we know that when we try to deny, when we try to suppress, what happens? Either, either unconsciously, because so much of the habit mind is, is involved in this unconscious. In other words, it's not a willful thing, but just a, a habitual pressing down. When we do that, either consciously or unconsciously, we close the whole system off. It's not a selective thing. You can't close off one part of yourself, one thought, one set of, one kind of feeling, without it uh, sort of closing off the whole emotional system. It just, that's the way it works, folks. So uh, if we do that, if we suppress through practice or through just the way we relate to others, when we do that, eventually we are going to become depressed. And when we do, our ability to empathize, our ability to have compassion for others also will become cut off. 
it becomes dulled. So bodhicitta and the bodhisattva way is about opening up these natural pathways in the body, in the mind, so that our natural wisdom and compassion can come forward, can flow. And so, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, the, this um, compassion is really a fuel source for the bodhisattva. And if it's shut off inside of us, then we're going to have a limited capacity to help others. Kapila Roshi used to say that, that compassion is the working out of wisdom in the world. Compassion is the working out of wisdom in the world. So the heart of this second vow is really about waking up to all the ways that we blindly react, the ways we deny, the ways we cut off, the ways we block that inborn compassion. And when we're blind to something, of course, we, we can't see it. Right? We can't see what we can't see. But as we practice, our awareness begins to grow. We begin to tune in to those habit forces, those ways that we do dull out. And as we do, we can actually, this is the hard part about practice, as we do begin to tune in to all those ways, all those habits, we can actually become quite sick of ourselves. <laughs> I don't know if any, anybody else has experienced that. But that's a good thing. We can also begin to feel guilty for the ways we've acted, the unskillful things we've said, the unskillful things we've done. And but the thing is, is it's a good thing as long as it motivates us to change. If we simply become more aware through our mindfulness, through our if we simply become more aware of our patterns and don't do anything about it, then it becomes one way more way of self-torture, right? There are many people that practice meditation, some kind of introspection. They become very tuned in to themselves, but it becomes a way of just beating themselves up over. So by sitting with our minds and zazen, we become more aware of our greed, of our hatred, of our delusion, our desires, the way we enact those de desires. And while it's an absolutely important part of practice, it can also, um, like I said, be at times disheartening because we can see when we're honest with ourselves, when we're honest with ourselves, um, we can see things that we don't want to see. As I often quote Yogi Berra, um, some people are going to get sick of this quote, but maybe it'll sink in one day. You know, it's a rare person who wants to see what he doesn't want to see. Or rare, maybe, maybe it's a rare person who, want, who yeah. can hear what they don't want to hear, wants to hear what they don't want to hear. And I, I remember sitting in Sashin um, many decades ago, 
Sashina, these retreats, that, these intensive retreats that we do here in, in Zen practice. And I remember sitting in the midst of a seven-day Sashin and just being flooded with all of the ways that I was holding back in my life. All the regret just came to the surface. Just, just became so overwhelming. And I remember going to my teacher in Doksan during the evening rounds of Zazen, just in tears, you know, head and hand going, you know, kind of laying it out, um, just blah. <laughs> and him kind of just listening and him saying, it's good that you notice these things. I said, yeah, but, but, the, but I just, I can't see through Mu. I, I, I just won't be able to do it. I won't be able to have any insight until I clear all this stuff out until it all resolves itself. And he looked at me straight in the eyes and he said, no, you don't. No, you don't. That's just one more delusion that you have, that you need to clear all this out. It's one more way that you hold yourself back. How, how many times do we do this? You know, I can't do this until I take care of this, this, and the other thing becomes one more strategy that we stay on the sidelines of our life, of our practice. We need to see our practice, we need to see our lives now, move, now, not in some future condition. After that, Sashin, I remember going to the library on the third floor of the Zen Center and just taking this book off the shelf of Taoist poetry. And I just opened it randomly. And this poem, which I, to this day, still remember, it said, see the sun in the midst of the rain, grasp cool water from the heart of the fire. See the sun in the midst of the rain, grasp cool water from the heart of the fire. have to see our practice in the midst of these blind passions, of these ways we feel stuck. We have to see that those two are it. And so as we gain more experience with practice and gain a basic stability of mind, these desires, the habits, the obstacles that we struggle with, they used to be such kind of a weighty thing that used to overwhelm us. Instead, become a motivation for practice. All the habits that we struggle with become just like the Bodhisattva's fuel source is compassion. For us as practitioners, um, the, the ways we feel stuck in our life uh, should motivate us to get to the bottom of them. Right? To, get us to the cushion to sit, to resolve these things. Many of you are familiar with the 10 ox herding pictures. Is, who's um, not familiar with the 10 ox herding pictures in Buddhism and in Zen? Okay. Um, I really recommend that you look into those. At some point, maybe we'll do a, a little class or workshop on them. But they're basically um, a, 
depiction from, well, there, was, there have been different iterations. They come out of China. They are a, um, a representation, more or less, of the spiritual journey in Zen. Um, they depict a person who you know, sets out to find the ox, and, uh, which represents our true nature. And as they begin, they come across the footprints of the ox. They finally catch a glimpse of the ox. They manage to get a hold of the ox, learn to ride the ox, and finally forget and just return to the marketplace with helping hands to help others. So Dido Rory, who was a contemporary uh, Zen teacher, died, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago or maybe eight years ago, something like that. He commented on the ox herding pictures, um, kind of using, instead of the ox as an image for our true nature, he used it as an image for all these habit forces, these blind passions that we struggle with. We try to work on our habits, our problems, and, and yet we keep tripping over the same ones. The ox of habit, of course, is so strong. And, and in that, there becomes a kind of a point of tension. In the fourth ox herding picture, um, the verse, each one of these pictures comes with a verse. And um, the fourth picture says this, it says, I seize him, meaning the ox, with a terrific struggle. His great willpower are, inex are inexhaustible. He charges to the high plateau, far above the cloud mists, or in an impenetrable ravine, he stands. Hard to grasp, pulling. And then the fifth picture says, the whip and rope are necessary, else he might stray down the dusty road. Being well-trained, he becomes naturally gentle. Then unfettered, he obeys his So it starts as this struggle, you know, with our minds, with, with our karma. And that struggle is necessary. We can't skip that part. We then becomes a more gentle accepting. But one of the questions that often comes up for folks is, why is it? Why is it that we continually follow these patterns inside of ourselves? Why is it that we know, when we know something is a dead end, we do it anyway, returning to it over and over again? It's a question that should be investigated by each one of us in our own life. From a basic Buddhist point of view, you could say that, generally speaking, that these things just haven't run their course. Maybe on one level we say, oh yeah, I'm done, you know, I'm done with reacting this way, I'm done arguing, I'm done drinking, I'm done not sitting, I'm going to do it, you know, and then we fall back again and again. So on some level we still believe that these things, these habits will do the trick. We haven't completely exhausted them. And even, you know, even when our minds have completely said, no, we're done, 
there is a residual karma in the body, you know, a momentum in our bodies that, that has been built up year after year. So it's not easy to simply, you know, say I'm done. The body says, no, 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 no. You're not quite done yet. And so it can feel, it can feel at times helpless, like we're helpless against these forces. Anybody that has struggled with these. But we aren't, we aren't helpless. That's the thing. The nature of being human, being born as a human in Buddhist terms, is that we can do, do something about these things. And so we have these animal instincts. We are, we have sort of one foot in the animal realm. We are still animals, driven. And yet we have these beautiful minds that can see, oh, this is what you're doing. We can become more conscious, more aware, more in charge. In other words, we, are, we, we still have desires, we still have these blind passions, but we are not bound by them. So just to be clear, it's not that we get rid of desire. We don't. We will never get rid of our desires. Okay? That is not the practice. We can't escape our karma. Instead, our job is to learn to hold that, to hold it, not to wrestle it down, not to push it away, but to hold it to see things clearly in our awareness. You know, it's when I'm, we give basic instructions, Zazen, the instruction for the hands is to, keep, to take the right hand and put it in your lap, left hand on top, thumbs come to center, making a gentle oval. The hands are taut, you know, but they're not tight. They're not limp, but they're not squeezing. And I often, you know, say, if you imagine holding a bird in your hand, the, the job is to not let that bird go, but not, not crush it either. And this is how we use the awareness in our Zen practice, is to hold without the over-tightening or letting loose. When we really get a clear picture of all of these forces in our life, we, we begin to see that they are actually quite simple. All of your habits, all of those um, annoying patterns, are, they arise from the same source. They are all self-protective. They are all self-oriented. And so as we practice, we, the self, the so-called self, of course, which isn't a thing, but to speak of it, it begins to feel threatened. And so it reacts, it reacts. This is where greed comes from. This is where hatred comes from, where our delusive thing comes from. It's all self-protective. But in Zen practice, we also begin to see the empty nature of 
and we see the empty nature of the person. It's not that these patterns are yours. In fact, one of the things that we come to see is that so much of who we take ourselves to be as a person is actually simply made up of skandhas, so much of these habit forces. And the fundamental insight in Zen is to see through this, the whole show, to see through the whole show, not getting caught in it. So in some uh, translations of the Four of Vows, desires or blind passions, it's sometimes translated as delusions. It, it reminds me of a, um, a dialogue between a monk and a master, Tang era master called Kyose. Um, and so I want to share this uh, little dialogue that he had with you. Kyose asked a monk, What is the sound outside? The monk said, It's the sound of raindrops. Kyose said, People live in a topsy turvy world, they lose themselves in delusion and only pursue outside objects. The monk said, what about you, master? Kyose said, I was on the brink of losing myself in such delusions. The monk said, what do you mean on the brink of losing myself in such delusions? And Kyose said, to break through into the world of essence may be easy, but to express it fully is difficult. So I'm sure you're all judging by the look on people's faces. <laughs> what is the sound outside? The monk says, it's the sound of raindrops. You know, he answers very plainly. So in some ways, we can't fault this monk. But his answer reveals where he is, that he's still caught in labels, in ideas. This is the fundamental delusion of separation, when we label, when we judge, when we step back and say, oh, that's this, oh no, that's that. And again, this sense of separation is what gives rise to these unskillful actions, and ultimately to our suffering. So the monk doesn't yet know, of course, that he and the rain are one body. One body. When we take up this, which we do in our tradition, we take up this koan, this case, this dialogue in our zazen, the job is for the student is to come into Doksan and demonstrate this truth that the rain and us are not separate. How do we do that? Kyose responds to this monk saying, Well, people in this world pursue are deluded and pursue outside objects. In other words, the more we invest in self and other, the more the three poisons damage our lives. And so our practice is 
to turn that light around over and over again and shine it back on its source, to investigate. This monk says, well, Master, what about you? What about you? Aren't you also in this topsy-turvy world? I mean, you're a human being. It's a good question. It's actually a really poignant question that this monk comes back with. What about you, Master? Kyose said, I was on the brink of losing myself in such delusions. In other words, it's, it's, it is easy to fall into subject and object, isn't it? It's easy to forget oneself. It's easy to pursue outside objects, to believe that our, 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 our freedom is somewhere out there, outside the temple gate. It's easy. So Kyose knows this. He knows this and he willingly enters the fray. Just this is the, Bodhi, the Bodhisattva, um, as a reminder, she puts off her own full awakening. She stays in the world of subject and object to help, whatever is necessary. So he knows this, but Kyose said, didn't say he was lost. He said, I almost got lost in the illusion. He said, I was on the brink of getting lost. It's a big difference. Luckily, when we do get lost, lost in ideas or labels or pinning things down, this is who I am, this is the way the world is, whatever we tend to do. We can always start again. Which leads us to the third of the four fowls, Dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate, sometimes translated as the dharmas are boundless, I vow to master them. One translation is reality is boundless, I vow to perceive it. Of course, Dharma refers to the Buddhist teaching, but also refers to the 10,000 things, all things. In other words, everything. Everything is a barrier. Everything is a gate. And a gate is usually uh, something that protects something. It's a, it's a doorway. Something to be walked through. You could say it's an opportunity. Gates. Apparently, Kyosei was fond of asking this question about the sound. Each time he said this question, he was inviting his monks to walk through this Dharma gate, to respond intimately. What is that sound outside? One time he asked that question, Different time he asked it, he said, what's that sound? A monk said, it's the sound of a frog being eaten by a snake. Kyose responded by saying, I knew sentient beings suffer, but now I see a suffering being in front of me right now. And then another time he asked the same question, what's the sound outside? The monk responded, a quail. And his response was, 
If you want to avoid uninterrupted hell, don't slander the Dharma of the Buddha. Can you imagine being the monk? Like, I, I was just answering the question, man. <laughs> But the key here, each time Kyosei asks this question, he is again inviting this, an intimate response, not an intellectual one. Intimacy is never far away. You know, it shows up everywhere. As I often say, it's always presenting itself. In, in thinking about this, how we, we dull ourselves through our intellects, uh, this quote from um, this writer, or maybe some of you heard of Annie Dillard. Somebody heard of Annie Dillard? She said this, she said, uh, we still and always want waking. We should amass half-dressed in long lines like tribesmen and shake gourds at each other to wake up. Instead, we watch television and miss the show. How we dull ourselves, not just through outside media, but through our thinking, conceptualizing. How we dull our lives that way. Okay, Kyose knows this. He knows, and he says, to break through might be easy, to have a moment of intimacy may be easy, but to express it, he says to express fully the bare substance, he says, is difficult. In other words, to live our lives that way is the practice. Yeah. This, right, we talk about insight in Zen, about having these openings. Yeah, that's fine, that needs to happen. But the key is to live it, not just to, to have little glimpses. This is a lifetime work. Dogen says about practice, the further out we go, the deeper it gets. The further out we go, the deeper it gets. You know, every year I say to myself, okay, that's it. This is it. Okay, I understand. And the next year it goes, right. no, this is it. Okay, this is it. Next year. No, that, I didn't know that I was talking about. Now I get it. Now I get it, right? I don't know if that has ever that ever happened in your own life, like in your work or in your family. Now, now I know what it means to, to do this. And you look back, I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. <laughs> I was just a young kid or whatever, right? The further out we go, the deeper it gets. And, and after a while of doing that, hopefully we actually get to the place where we just go, you know, I don't know. I don't know. What a relief. It is so the fourth vow, the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain. Another translation is the Buddha way is unsurpassable, I vow to become it. As I've said before, you know, Buddhism is not a thing. It's not an ism. That's a, that's a Western thing. Buddhism. Consumerism. 
Pollyisms. We can't nail it down. It's not a thing. There is no holy book. There is no doctrine. There is no holy person. And as the Dharma moves from culture to culture, it takes the clothing of what the culture it enters, so to speak. It changes, it adapts. It's impermanent. It can't be. It can't be grasped. There's nothing gained. And there's nothing lost either. Instead, we practice it. We practice it. Once when the Buddha was teaching, he, um, he simply held up a flower to the assembly, the whole congregation was there. He simply held up a flower. And we're told that Mahakashapa broke out into a smile. And at that point, the Buddha said, I have the all-pervading eye of the true Dharma, the secret heart of incomparable Nirvana, the true aspect of formless form. It does not rely on words or letters and is transmitted outside the scriptures. I now hand it on to Mahakashapa. What was transmitted? What was given? What was attained by Mahakashapa in that smile? We don't really, to be honest with you, we really don't get anything from practice. The more we practice, though, the more we become the Buddha way. It's not, you see what I mean, the difference here? We, we ourselves wake up to the fact that we are, we are the Buddha way. It's not, it's not somewhere else. There's no stupa where the Buddha way is. There's... You know, you're not going to wander through the woods one day and find this door and walk in and go, oh, here's it's, It is ourself. A monk asked uh, Master Joshi, what is meditation? And Joshi said, it's not meditation. And the monk said, well, what is it? And Joshi said, it's alive. It's alive. So these four vows are really an invitation to live, you know, to, they're something to return to over and over again. All beings without number, I vow to liberate. Endless blind passions, I vow to uproot. Dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate. The great way of Buddha, I vow to attain. So, and, and as we practice, whether you're here for the first time or whether you've been doing this for years and years, the thing is that we, return to the practice, and then we fall away from it. And then we return, and then we fall away. We do this over and over again. This is just the natural rhythm of life. And that's, you know, it's necessary. It, the, luckily, luckily the, the Dharma is always open. It's always here. It's always going, hey, welcome back. Right? You fell away, welcome back. <clears throat> It's, it's never been like, oh, you, you were gone for a while. You know, sorry, you're no longer welcome. 
And so these four vows are this, that invitation to commit to embracing reality. So why don't we, um, why don't we end there? Why don't we stop and recite the four vows? The four vows. All beings without